Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the new Health Club podcast. This is where the conversation around the new age of mental wellness begins. I think that psychedelics will play a big part in this, and there's a lot of scientific research happening and an industry growing around the topic as we speak. But what are LSD, magic mushrooms, psilocybin and MDMA or ketamine are exactly doing for our mental health and personal progress in the future? On the new Health Club podcast, I talk to real innovators, thought leaders and disruptors from the emerging new world of psychedelics and mental wellness. This podcast deals with drugs. Drugs are dangerous and you should not do drugs. Furthermore, the use and or trade of drugs may be punishable by law. This podcast is not suitable for people under the age of 18. This episode of the new Health Club podcast is part of our special Heal Soul series, which is sponsored by Dr. Bronner's, the activist soap company from California. Dr. Bronner's is a family-owned company founded in 1948 that's dedicated to honoring the vision of its founder, Emmanuel Bronner, by making personal care products of the highest quality and by dedicating profits to promote a better world for all. The Bronner family started making soap in 1858 here in Germany and carries on the family soap-making tradition today by using the company as an engine for progressive social change. Dr. Bronner's dedicates profits to organizations working in support of regenerative organic agriculture, animal rights, community betterment, criminal justice reform, fair pay and fair trade, and drug policy reform, which includes the responsible and equitable integration of psychedelic medicine into American and global culture. For more information on Dr. Bronner's in Germany, please visit drbronner's.de. For more information on Dr. Bronner's globally and in the United States, please visit drbronner.com. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of the New Health Club podcast. I could say my guest today doesn't need an introduction in the psychedelic world since he's famous there. But for those who don't know him, it's Christian Angemeyer, the founder of a Pyron Investment Group and the founder of Atai Life Sciences, the biotech platform to heal mental health disorders. Christian is on the show the second time, and we are very excited about this, since he's one of the most thriving forces in a new psychedelic industry. So talking to him means getting an update on the current developments. Christian is not your typical investor. He's an evangelist, a force that's driving the psychedelic movement forward very passionately, and he's also known for his unique art collection centered around the theme of psychedelics. This episode gives you a quick update on the status quo of the new psychedelic business world, which is becoming more and more fascinating. So please enjoy the show and Christian Angemeyer. We're very happy to welcome Christian Angemeyer today at the Dr. Bronner's Heal Soul session for and the New Health Club, our collaboration on the podcast. 
So Christian is a very, I would say, thriving person, a very um, important person in a new psychedelic field. And of course, it would be great if you introduce yourself first to our audience. Okay, yeah. Hello, everybody. Very happy um, to be here, which is actually the second time we're doing that together. So we're already a good team. What about me? My name is Christian. I'm German, living in London. I run my own family office, which is called uh, a Pyron Investment Group. And I do invest a lot in psychedelics, in the meaning of psychedelics, bringing them back as medical, as hopefully soon, a medical treatment for various forms of uh, mental health disorder. So that's sort of the reason why I'm here. Otherwise, I invest a lot in generally in biotech, fintech, crypto, deep tech, like space tech, AI. So, so the broad range of, let's say, tech investment. I sort of invest or slash start I have started psychedelic companies and sort of the biggest one, actually a platform and then within Atai are several compounds we're developing. Yeah, is, is a company called Atai, Atai Life Sciences, which I founded and which I would say is the largest psychedelic, if you want to call it that way, company at the moment. So in the sort of this virgin space of psychedelic medicine. Okay. And we had the idea to, today to do a little bit like a a fast run through to the most important questions that people that might not be in the psychedelic field already would actually always ask if you talk about psychedelics. So of course, the first question would be, why are you interested in psychedelics? So, so my story is sort of not unusual because I think every story is, is sort of special in its own way. Yeah, but I think a lot of people came to psychedelics because they were actively sort of seeking for something. So with me, it was rather not the opposite, but like, it was like I'm, I sort of was, in a certain way, I would use the word anti-drugs, at least for myself. I'm a libertarian, so it's not that I'm, I always said like other people shouldn't do this or that. Yeah, But I was for myself in very early years, like when I was, I remember when I was like 13, 14, and I have to say I grew up in Bavaria where people, where beer is sort of like a, basic nutrition yeah so i defined for myself and thought for myself so i don't want to take drugs because very positively said i was always a happy child i was not bad in school so i was like okay you sort of have the jackpot with your brain it's all fine so don't risk it don't put anything sort of outside in your brain and that actually sort of childhood thing sort of stayed with me so i did i never have actually drank alcohol ever in my whole life. I never smoked a cigarette. I never smoked a joint. Actually, the only thing I did was coffee and I always feel bad about that. And I started drinking coffee, I remember that when I was 26. So my first coffee I drank was 26. And I was super guilty. And so it's really very Puritan, I think you would say. And then like seven years ago at a, actually it was a birthday party. Uh, friends had sort of set me up, set me next to who is now a very dear friend who I met that evening, who's a very famous uh, neuroscientist in Germany. So if he's watching, thank you very much for that evening. Um, and uh, so they, I think their intention was a little bit, okay, let's try if we can get Christian drunk for the first time in his life. So his sort of thing was like to tell me that I'm not going to die if I drink alcohol, Yeah, which obviously I knew. Isn't it? And so, but anyway, so when we had this fascinating discussion and he pulled up as his main sort of part of the discussion, David Nutt's chart about sort of the risk of various drugs. So whoever is watching, 
Google David Nutt, N-U-T-T, who is David, is a very famous neuroscientist here in London. He's at Imperial College. He wrote a book actually about the misperception we have about the risk of drugs. And, and the chart is very graphic because sort of it shows you what he did. He ranked all drugs, how risky they are. So, um, and the surprise fact, meaning I spill it now, but like, yeah, look at it. It's really, really worth it Googling it. The surprise fact was like that alcohol by far, really by far, I think it was the whole score had like 80 risk points and alcohol had 72 actually followed by heroin. So, so heroin in a, in a comprehensive view is a little bit less risky. It doesn't make it better. It's the second most risky drug, yeah? but it's less risky than alcohol. And then at the very end, yeah, on the right side, with a tiny, tiny risk score, which practically just means that you can hurt yourself if you do something stupid on mushrooms, were magic mushrooms. So that was sort of the basis of our discussion. It was super fascinating because we have this sort of completely wrong or at least, yeah, so let's say wrong or a few in our society, how, which drug is risky, which not. I remember my parents who told me, if you ever take psychedelics, you're never going to come back. Like, this is like, you have a job and you stay there and all of that bullshit. So, so anyway, so that was the start. And, the, and then he also said, look, but what this chart is not telling you is actually what is good for you. Yeah? And obviously alcohol would be, again, the worst one because there is no real upside. Maybe it makes you a little bit more social, but like, but then he actually talked about his, that's the main point, sorry for the long story, but he talked about his um, work with psychedelics. He actually, which I was really impressed, or actually I'm more impressed now looking back because I now understand the whole history of psychedelics. He did his PhD actually still with Albert Hoffman. So he was deeply in that scene. And uh, he was like, look, all these psychedelics, especially magic mushrooms, have been used as medicine, can cure various mental health disorders. And even if you're a happy person like yourself, they have sort of an upside. They can make you deeply more happy, more creative. They can add to your life. So, so that was the moment when I sort of, because he was so legit yeah, when I started sort of thinking about it, researching it. And as I said, and maybe with the introduction a little bit quick, but like, so I started my career in biotech by co-founding a biotech company when I was 20. So when I say I have my family office, yeah, it's not inherited, yeah, but it's sort of my own entrepreneurial work. So I, I do like biotech a lot. So I, yeah, so I started reading and it actually took me a year. So I'm a very, very sort of risk averse person. So, and then one year later, I was in the Caribbean with really, really close friends whom I trust. And as people say, we might come to that later, it's all about set and setting. So it was the right moment, right environment, right people. And they had homegrown magic mushrooms. It was in a country to add that, the disclaimer, where magic mushrooms are legal. They were like, want to try? And I was like, you know what? Yeah, let's do it. And as yeah. I always say it in one sentence, it was the single most meaningful thing important thing, defining thing in my whole life I ever did. So I had this sort of very deep spiritual, mystical experience, which really, as people describe it, completely re-added to my life a lot. Yeah. And because I'm an entrepreneur in my heart, um, the next day I was like, okay, this should be available for people, not just in the Caribbean, not just like, yeah, so, but like in a in a regular way. And it was legal in the 60s. So I was like, why can't we bring it back? So and that was sort of the start 
of that whole uh, endeavor. Sorry for the long story. No, I mean, you kind of brought us to the point when you tried it. So, I mean, and as we know, like when you, when you do a magic mushroom trip, kind of the, the next six months leading up, like, come, like after this trip, it's often when the experience will show in your life, like in a way that you might not even know once you just finish the experience. So how would you describe what has really changed in your life? I mean, in general, as an entrepreneur, as a person, after you did your first trip? So I have to say, again, positively, in my case, that I came already from a sort of a very happy place. So I'm, I'm personally very spiritual. So I was always into meditation, into sort of self-improvement, like the whole self-exploration, whatever. So, which by the way, I think, so I, I, I immediately understood why sort of magic mushrooms in that case and in general psychedelics can help you so much because I saw in my case that they sort of, in a way deeper way, obviously, I was ever able to reach myself, but they sort of triggered the same um, mechanism or the same positive yeah, sort of self-exploration stuff, meaning a lot of, let's say, mystical traditions or whatever, try to teach you partly without psychedelics, because psychedelics are not the only way to sort of come to that sort of revelations and, and and sort of exploration of yourself. Yeah, but they have just like sort of the, as Michael Pollan says, you go from zero to one, like while the others like meditation, you work and work and work. Yeah. But like, so but I sort of, I, I immediately saw how they sort of fitting into that whole, let's call it wisdom tradition or mystical tradition of religions. So I think That in my case, meaning I did see a positive, just for a second, it was not this massive change from minus one to one because I was already sort of the way I was thinking, I would say. But maybe the fun anecdote is, to give you a concrete answer, is that like, I think it was like four weeks later, my mother, whom I, who I didn't tell that I took magic mushrooms, when I was there back in Germany, she was like, something did change the last week. So what did you do? So, uh, and the reason was that, I'm, I'm an only child and uh, I have a great relationship with my parents, but like you always take that for granted and you're always busy. And I see them actually, I think my parents would completely disagree. They would say I'm seeing them way too little, but I think, yeah, I see them fairly often, meaning every one or two weeks because they moved for me to Frankfurt and I'm in Frankfurt quite regularly. So they, again, they still complain, but I think it's fairly regularly. But the, actually, the real problem is not how often you see them, but how is the time you spend with them? So you come home, meaning I try to stay with, sometimes with my parents, uh, and then you come home and you're busy uh, and you come home late and you are tired, you want to go to bed. And sort of that changed a lot. So I try to say, so sort of, and not in a negative way, it sounds, I think that's the thing, it's always, as you know, very hard to talk about psychedelic experiences. So in not a negative way, I realized that time is... And again, by the way, for all the ones who, 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 who watch now and maybe haven't done it, a lot of the things I, I think people realize, and for them it's a very important realization, is very banal, I think. So you might say, Jesus, I could have told you. Yeah, that I realized like life is ending somewhere, life has a limit, and sort of you have to cherish the people you love in a quality way while they're still there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And sort of so the, 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 the way I spent time with my parents um, changed extremely. 
positively. Again, not that it was negative before, I just like tried to put more effort in, if that makes sense, yeah. And they realized it, parents are very sensitive for that. And I think that's, it's one of the very fun anecdotes because they realized that they were like, something did happen in your holiday. Kind of. Like, no, but I mean, it's, it's, it's really true that you, you see them also in a different way and you see the, the things they went through which they would never tell you sometimes what they went through maybe. I mean, it's a generation also that has experienced, sometimes experienced the Second World War, or like the time right after, which makes a really big difference that we can't really imagine anymore what that feels like, I feel. So, but I mean, um, obviously when we talk about psychedelics today, it's related to this huge mental health crisis that we're experiencing right now. And you invest a lot in this, you try to come up with in your companies with solutions, with medication that will kind of engage with that problem. So um, why do you think today, or maybe you can talk a little bit about this incredibly big mental health crisis that might, as we hear from a lot of scientists, also Robin, Kurt Harris, that might even increase in the next couple of months after the main COVID crisis has passed? Well, Where do we start? Because it's such a big problem. Meaning, first of all, factually seen, it became the number one disease. Actually, even even bigger in terms of overall burden, costs, whatever, patient suffering than the heart um, and cardiovascular disease diseases. So, so, so that's a fact. And interestingly, negatively, interestingly, I think if you look at the the numbers of people suffering from mental health issues, they actually growing every year, which sort of is, is kind of weird because it's not an infectious disease. Meaning if you look at the, I, I had one scientist, which had an interesting article, which I read, which said like, if you look at it, it looks like an infectious disease or something like, which is spreading. Although it's sort of in the, maybe in the, in the, in the main definition of what an infectious disease is, it's obviously not. But but that's actually very worrisome. Why is mental health spreading? And I, I think scientists have two explanations. And I think the, the work has just started. So I could take, take probably my takeaway, but it's not scientific. But like I think factually, my guess is that, that there is two reasons. On the one side, we diagnose mental health issues more. So meaning, if you look back in the 50s, or generally look back in uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago, I think various mental health always has been a stigma. It's still a stigma, but thanks God, it's losing a little bit of the stigma. And obviously the, the more it loses the stigma, the more people are openly talking about it and also go to the doctor and get diagnosed with it. So there is this one effect that we sort of more precisely diagnose it because people are more open, though, because we have the tools, we understand these things better. That's another thing like... 50 years ago, we didn't understand the brain. After the war, as you say, yeah, if people were what we would maybe call now had post-traumatic stress disorder, yeah, maybe the people would have said, hey, you survived, be happy, man up, go to the gym, do something, yeah, push it away. Yeah, so, so the whole, the one diagnosis, but I also do think an absurd thing, because I, I do think that the world we live in is inherently not good for our brain. Yeah, uh, which is actually absurd because I mean, you can say now we had COVID and we're recording that while we see all the riots in America. But still, if you leave these two things out, which are blinks, 
I think if we factually, and I'm a very, very big optimist for the world, if you look at the world as it is today, it is better in any sort of um, any measure, how you would measure better yeah, from nutrition for people, from way less child mortality, way more people who have access to education and all of that. Like, so, but still, although we live in a better world than maybe people after the war, yeah, which is, I think, definitely, even if you look at America, people are complaining and I do see all the problems, but it's still better than after the Second World War in Germany yeah, and stuff like that. I think the world we created, and I think social media and the whole online artificial world yeah, is not a good place for our brain. And even more, we need to think about it because it won't go away. Social media is there for stay. The world is there. And it's actually getting, and I wouldn't like to say worse again because I'm an optimist, but the world, world will be more technologized every day, every week, every month, every year. So we need to think about how can humanity sort of, if I say say be saved in that it sounds so dramatic, but how can we preserve our our human core in that te- technologized world? And I do think that psychedelics can play a very important part in that. What you just described is this that I think that you can almost see why psychedelics will become more important because to really make that connection again between people that they have lost because of technology or obviously other um, horrible reasons that we're just witnessing in America. So, um, but I mean, obviously you, you're in, you're in venture capital. If, if you want, let's stay because I think that's, I don't know when the podcast will be, will be released, but like I, I, I saw a lot actually last night because again, when for the people who are watching, like we're recording that in that week where the whole riots in America blew out. And, and really obviously I think that's a lot, it's, it's a very broad and very complicated topic because I think there are so many things which are wrong and wrong for a very long time, whatever. But I think, and by the way, that what I think is, is a problem in many, many conflicts. And you can take a small conflict in a relationship, for example, if a couple over decades sort of is fighting and nagging to conflicts within the society. Like if you, if you look at the ethnic conflicts now in America, to conflicts between countries, whatever, any form of conflict sort of results in, in deep trauma. And the problem is it's like a vicious circle. The, the longer this, this goes on and one sort of, and again, I'm super simplifying and people might watch now and say, hey, it's too simplifying. But like, if you look at Israel and Palestine, yeah, that's a trauma for maybe 2000 years. Yeah? And the problem is, or think about a marriage, yeah, when people then go into a fight and it's actually not about, I don't know, the toilet which hasn't been put down or whatever. It's actually, it's just the occasion, but you have that whole history of hurt and, and trauma and pain and whatever, which is in your bag. And like you, you flooded, like, oh, but like 10 years ago, you said that. And, blah, blah, blah. So, and, and the same, I think, again, is on a more societal basis. Yeah. And one beautiful thing psychedelics can can do they heal trauma yeah um, this is why in the 60s they were actually used very very successfully mdma and psilocybin for couple therapy yeah with, with an enormous success rate meaning it never had it was never actually sort of 
used as a medication because sort of having marriage problems is not defined as, a, as an illness. Yeah. So, but it was used for that and we have great record and studies showing. So, and so, so if you go now on a societal basis, I would say we have so much trauma in our world that yes, there, there needs to be some, so let's say economic change and we need to include people more, whatever. But I think if we don't address the deeper trauma in all of that, yeah, we will not be able to really come to, to solutions. So it's a very, from a medical point of view, it's a very sort of complicated discussion because obviously you just can approve, if I go back to our sort of endeavor, trying to make psychedelics legal again as a medical solution, you can just approve it for an illness. Yeah? And an illness is a depression, whatever. You cannot say, oh, our society has an illness. But in a certain way, our society does have an illness yeah, or has a lot of them. And one is the trauma and the pain we inflicted on each other. Yeah, so maybe I vision, I, mean, I look 20 years ahead, maybe we sort of even approach psychedelics with this broader view. Or last sentence on that, I thought a lot about like, take all the refugees coming to Europe. Everybody is talking about, and it's great that we're talking about it. Talking is always the first step to, to solution, but like that we have to sort of, work and meaning we have to think about how to integrate these people but my bet is a big part of that people or my guess is that they have PTSD I mean if you're coming from a war zone yeah and if you're a child in a war zone you do most likely have what we call post-traumatic stress disorder so and this will hinder actually proper integration and not because and this is the sort of then the political wrong takeaway you have sort of the one side who's just saying, oh, it's, let's say in, in Germany, it's out there. You have sort of the rather left who's saying, oh, the Germans need to work harder to integrate these people. It's it's sort of the, it's the fault of the hosts. Yeah. And then you have the right wing people who say, no, 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 these people don't want to integrate. Yeah. And maybe it's neither nor, maybe it's nor the, the, the fault of the hosts, nor that those people don't want to. It's maybe that they have really trauma and, and PTSD and whatever, which just makes it not possible for them to integrate. And we would need to approach that discussion from a totally different level. There, there will be actually studies, so there is already one study in the context of MAPS with um, an African-American doctor. And she, I think she started already the first study for um, PTSD through racism in African-Americans and so I think she has started already but just very shortly so integration in, in, a, like in, in a bigger context of a society I think this will become much bigger if it comes to with psychedelics if it comes to racism if it comes to discrimination and um, even like um, if I mean there are already kind of possibilities for big CEOs to undergo let's say um, an a, a psychedelic experience and I heard from somebody who does that with people who actually are leaders from of, of a company um, that even their whole relationship to their kind of co-workers or their the, the, or their team completely changes after this and they kind of reset the company and they reset their relationships to anybody who works with them so which might be an interesting thought for the times that are coming But I mean, you can totally, totally understand. Yeah. I mean, which you basically did too, in, in a way, right? I mean, you 
you had different ideas about companies after you've done this. So, and I mean, what I would like to talk about also is, um, we kind of talk about uh, psilocybin basically, but Atai is also working on um, other substances like ketamine and ibogaine, which most people yeah. maybe haven't heard so much about. So maybe what is ibogaine, what is ketamine? Could you explain? Yeah, so, so, so yeah, in general, we, so far, we always talked about uh, the word psychedelics, which is sort of uh, actually not even fully defined in terms of some people would argue, and actually some people argue very passionately, and I think it doesn't matter. Yeah, but like what's exactly falling into it, there is MDMA, is it a psychedelic? Not even ketamine, people would already start, but I think it, it, we, you call it definitely ketamine is in, but like, yeah, so, so as you mentioned, so there is the whole sort of group name psychedelics. We work as a tie uh, with our um, uh, portfolio company, Compass Pathways on psilocybin, which I think is always the most famous sort of household magic mushrooms. Psilocybin is the active ingredient in, in magic mushrooms. So the most household sort of psychedelic. So the, the two sort of other main ones in a tie are, as you said, ketamine, actually a new version of ketamine and ibogaine. Let's, let's start with ketamine. So ketamine, a so-called racemic ketamine, is actually very old. And not everybody, but a lot of people will have had it in the hospital because this is actually ketamine, the racemic ketamine, is a good example of what we want other psychedelics to be again. Meaning ketamine, the original version already today, is legal in hospitals. Yeah, and it's illegal still outside of hospitals because it can have psychoactive effect. It's just legal if you have it under medical supervision. But interestingly, ketamine was originally not used as a mental health drug, but in, in a high dose is actually uh, a tranquilizer up to an anesthetic. So it was used to put people down in operations, to sedate them, whatever. And then the short version was that sort of anecdotally, by the way, side note, which I think will become thanks to the internet, and because we, I sort of mentioned that technology can have a negative effect, technology can have multiple very positive effects, yeah? And sort of one positive effect is actually that by technology, meaning by communicating online, exchanging ideas. So doctors found out that, hey, people who take ketamine and might have been depressed before, especially actually patients they found out who had like a suicide attempt and then they get ketamine to calm them, whatever, yeah, that they, the next day they were sort of not depressed anymore. Very simple. So they were like, what's happening? Like we gave them a tranquilizer and sort of the depression was gone. So and over years, the realization came that ketamine also has, a, has an extremely good antidepressant effect. Because ketamine is out of patent, and that shows, by the way, and I know it's a very controversial topic, yeah, but I like always to explain it because I think it's so important that the original ketamine, because it's out of patent, nobody's investing money because out of patent means nobody owns it, but if um, nobody has ownership in terms of responsibility. So nobody was sort of putting money behind this finding. So it stayed anecdotal. So people can use it technically, so-called off-label, but the risk is very high. Doctors don't do it. So, and then actually the, 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 someone they found out, this was sort of the very, very positive uh, moment that ket the racemic ketamine consists of two isomers and they called one R-ketamine and the other one S-ketamine. And they were patentable yeah, because it was sort of a new discovery. And so then actually Johnson Johnson was working on S-ketamine for various reasons they thought back then. Lucky me, like, no, they, they thought that this is the more profit, uh, the more 
yeah, profitable in terms of more promising one. And, and we actually took our ketamine and hindsight, we took the right choice because our ketamine actually seems to have, we're about to prove that in a FDA way, but our ketamine seems to have a higher actually potency for uh, or against depression. Yeah. And at the same time, um, actually a lower disassociative effect, which could even lead potentially that this could be the first ketamine you can administer at home and don't need uh, a doctor doing it with you, which would be important because obviously the costs for the healthcare system are much higher if you if you have to administer it with a doctor. This is what we're working on. It's called uh, R-ketamine, like R. And then, I mean, at the moment, like as you said, a lot of people can't go in their practice to see the psychiatrist or not go to, I mean, there are already ketamine clinics, at least all over America, I guess, in Canada. Yeah. And, um, but I mean, so for those who maybe, maybe never heard of this, <clears throat> if you really suffer from a very severe kind of, kind of suicidal moment, if you would actually able to do twice a week ketamine, you would be able to kind of, <clears throat> kind of bounce this off a little until you, your medication starts working or you can do another treatment. So and I think that's something that most people never heard of, that if they have somebody in their family or like even themselves, normally you, you, you call somebody and you're like, well, yeah, you should come in two weeks and then we might have something, a psychiatrist available. Yeah. So at the moment, this is like the thing that you could like also use in an emergency if you have somebody who just really doesn't have a choice kind of, right? No, so, to, so, so by the way, let's use that opportunity just as a disclaimer. We, have, we should have said it at the beginning. It's always important because obviously we're talking about health and people might go home and sort of hopefully actually think, oh, this could help me if, if I have an issue. Yeah, but just as a disclaimer before we go on talking about ketamine because ketamine is available so I can sort of, people could hopefully, again, potentially um, for good reasons, try to seek the therapy. But all these drugs we're talking about are very powerful. So, and this is why we're very much advocating, yes, they should be legal again, but they should be legal as ketamine is just if you take it with your therapist, with your doctor. Yeah. Uh, and not because we want to make it cumbersome, but because they are so powerful that you don't want to do the experience alone for many reasons, for sort of, uh, it's starting from that you're not hurting yourself when you're tripping, but also because you might go, especially if you come as, for example, ketamine, which you can use if you're suicidal, coming from a, uh, from a dark place and you want somebody who literally is guiding you through that experience and actually even post. So just if we talk about all these drugs now, for all the ones listening or watching, please always consult the doctor. And then I would say psychedelics have at the very beginning, I mentioned these David Nutt charts. They do have very little risk compared to other drugs, but they do have risks. And sometimes there are um, sort of, what's the English term? There are uh, factors which might exclude you from using it. It's little. It's, it's, you might be the one who doesn't work. So, again, you need a doctor who knows you, who knows your record, uh, um, who can judge, A, if psychedelics, and if so, which psychedelics, because they differ and the right ones for you. That's just as the disclaimer, but as the positive disclaimer, uh, because ultimately, again, the beauty of these drugs is that they can help people a lot. And I want people, if we talk about it, that they sort of help the right way with the right sort of therapy. But back to ketamine, indeed. So one of the positive things of ketamine is that it's working pretty quickly. It's literally, you could call it a quick fix. 
Yeah. So as you also said, it needs to be done regularly. So it's not a cure. While, for example, psilocybin, so magic mushrooms, they have the potential after one or two trips, whatever, to really cure depression and other stuff. Ketamine needs to be given permanently. Yeah. But as you say, ketamine is great in the case you uh, people are suicidal or have other forms of severe depression, where maybe even the diagnosis of the doctor is that other drugs, might it be psychedelics or co conventional drugs, might even help better, but they take longer. So even SSRIs, yeah, it takes a time till they sort of till you're like stabilized on them. Or let's think ahead in the future, you might come and see your doctor. And he might say the right thing for you is a, is a psychedelic, is a, is a magic mushroom trip, psilocybin trip. But because he needs eight hours for that, at least, yeah, he might not literally have, a, have, a, have an appointment for you. But he could say, look, I can give you an appointment in two weeks. But in order for you to be stable till then, you could take ketamine. So ketamine, indeed, quick fix, needs to be taken regularly. At the moment, needs to be taken with a doctor. It might be that in some years, if we are successful with our ketamine, we even, because again, it has it potentially has less disassociative effects. This is what we want to prove. Yeah, that it even uh, could be given at home, sort of as a treatment at home, and then you can sort of schedule your appointments, whatever. And then we, of course, in, in a couple of weeks, we will have uh, Deborah Mash also on the podcast. Love Deborah. It's going to be awesome. Very, yeah. very interesting woman. I mean, I already can say that. <laughs> um, and uh, so with her, you work on, if I understand it correctly, like on a medication that's based on ibogaine, right? Yes. And for those, I mean, you can explain it in a minute, but I think as far as what I heard about it so far, I mean, it's really very powerful to um, cure real, uh, really cure addiction and especially heroin addiction. Actually, so, so ibogaine, again, when I mention, by the way, I always say have the potential because a lot of the sort of stories or a lot of the uh, sources are at the moment for all these psychedelics, very anecdotal. Yeah, that means there are records, people did it, but not in the way you normally would say prove pharmacological drugs. So and what we're doing for all these drugs also to, to define that is that we All of the trials we're doing for ibogaine, for psilocybin, for arketamine are under FDA, Food and Drug Administration, supervision, and in Europe, under EMA, European Medical Agency. So are in a way that if we successfully go through it, and these are these famous phase one, phase two, phase three studies, yeah, and if we then approve, then finally, in sort of a medical term, we then can say, It really does work. So this is why at the moment I always add, although some viewers might say, but we know that ibogaine helps against uh, uh, addiction. We don't know it in sort of a pharmacological term. And this is the endeavor we have or the, the target we have to make it, yeah, sort of provenly in a pharmacological term. So ibogaine, again, has anecdotal evidence that, strong anecdotal evidence that it's, uh, that it's actually the only drug known in that sort of strength which can already after one sort of treatment uh, cure even severe forms, heroin addiction, opioid addiction, and obviously also weaker, I mean, on a scale weaker, like cocaine addiction, whatever, but any form of addiction. Yeah. Uh, by the way, in general, most psychedelics have these anti-addictive property. Yeah. So 
if somebody, for example, wants to quit smoking, um, a, a weaker could weaker because ibuprofen is a, is a pretty heavy trip in any form. It's very long, very deep, very challenging. So any even the sort of psilocybin again has anti-addictive uh, properties, but actually, so ibuprofen is sort of the, the strong one, and people always mention it in conjunction with heroin or opioid addiction because that's known as the most strongest addiction which it's almost impossible to get actually people off again. And if we look especially at America, America is actually in, in, in a lot of fields the leader and not always in the positive ones, uh, you have these very strong opioid crisis at the moment, which, by the way, spills into my theory of that America is a country of, of enormous trauma because one reason for addiction is actually pain which you try to numb down, which is normally caused if it's not a physical pain. So some people slide, as you know, into addiction with actually opioids yeah, uh, because they really have a physical pain. Yeah, But there is also the, the mental and the psychological pain caused by trauma, and then you slide into addiction. Yeah, um, and the opioid crisis is, is, is really out of control. Yeah, so, uh, so actually, positively said, we met with a lot of positive support by regulators, by politicians, for finding a solution for the opioid crisis. In one of these Eckhart Tolle videos where he said he couldn't live in Germany and America because the, his pain body would be too activated. And I think I heard this like five years ago and I was like, what does that mean? And now you kind of get the sense what it could mean actually, that people just really kind of take in pain maybe now in a different way than we, we thought about it like five years ago, it feels to me almost like. But I mean, um, so I know you you love debating. <laughs> still, there will be still a lot of people coming towards you or, or dressing you and saying like, well, this is it's like super dangerous to kind of communicate psychedelics in that way or, or, or like, I mean, since the market is this market is actually growing very fast. Um, some people will say, well, it's too fast. And it's like, um, you have to take it, take, the, take it a notch down in a way you actually invest in it. So to make it short, there will be a lot of people, maybe not in, 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 your, in your close surrounding or, in, or let's say in, in, in your entrepreneurial community, but outside of this, that will actually say, wait, this is super dangerous. There's not enough study. There's not enough... So whatever, like so and so. So how? What, what is your? What are your favorite or your your best working kind of um, arguments? Uh, first of all, like, yeah, uh, you might be right that maybe people think it that I'm sort of that it's dangerous, whatever, and they don't tell me. So I like it. It's like it's actually I'm, I'm always positively surprised how within the last years the whole psychedelic acceptance or at least that people think about it has positively changed and by the way i would credit most and for all two people um uh, first of all there is i want to say that because like yeah we talk about now what we are doing yeah but like literally i came to the party pretty late uh, I, i hopefully i in 10 years we're going to say christian added something to the whole uh, psychedelic movement but it didn't start with me at all i mean it's like I mean, you can say the psychedelic movement is thousands of years old because it started, I would say, most religions, and we can talk about it a little bit later because it's my favorite thing. It's like I, 
put a lot of research in which kind of religions were started and where do you find psychedelic roots. So it's a thousand year old movement. But like lately, I would say people like uh, Rick Doblin. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you've not had him. You have to have him on the... This afternoon. On the, uh, this afternoon, we talked to him. Oh, perfect. Uh, so, so Rick is amazing and he's working on it like since more than 30 years, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and then you have all the people who researched it, like Albert Hoffman, as per, like, yeah, uh, you have people like Deborah, yeah, uh, who's now working with me, but like who's in Mrs. Ibogaine, like Rick is Mr. MDMA, Deborah is, is, is Mrs. Ibogaine. Um, so just want to say, so I'm standing there on the shoulders of giants, so to say, and try to add sort of my sort of piece to, uh, to the whole puzzle. Yeah, but another person I want to mention when you say, like, how is the public perception is, is Michael Pollan. So whoever is watching and who has not read the piece or the book of Michael Pollan in English, How to Change Your Mind, um, I don't know the German title is very similar, yeah, uh, which is a book which changed over the last two years sort of single-handedly almost the public perception um, of psychedelics. He was on every talk show and he's very great with it. And he sort of, he got the right, and this is what I'm trying for myself actually to sort of get as well. He got the right line fine thin line to say look i think everybody who has done psychedelics for him or herself is very enthusiastic i think it's not possible to have done it yourself and not be positive about it yeah so but at the same time again we need to always mention there is not one fits all yeah you need your guy i mean there's so much so so and michael pollan did that great like on the one side i think he got across the enthusiasm because he tried it himself but on the other side he in a very very good way explained it scientifically what's happening in your brain which we understand now in the meantime better at least yeah um and and what are also the limitations because also there is never a wonder drug i think always when when things in history like where the wonder drug they fail because you can't live up to that expectation so so he's sort of the limitations. Blah, blah, blah. So, and that's sort of my my experience as well. People are open to talk about it. In my case, I normally get people if they are sort of skeptical. So nobody would say Christian is uh, a drug prophet or whatever. So everybody who knows me and knows my history with drugs or my non-existent history with drugs, yeah, would say, okay, if Christian talks about it, yeah, it's not like you say, oh, of course, Christian. Like it's the opposite. So, so, and this is why I actually this was for me one sort of personal thing which I dare to talk about it because I, I sort of come from so much the opposite side again that I think people don't think I sort of did it for party at Berkheim or whatever yeah so that's not at all who I am and then you unfortunately have what we have discussed already you have that enormous medical need so society is very pragmatic sometimes and politicians and regulators and they just don't have a choice almost unfortunately because the problem is becoming so big And they need to find solutions because otherwise this will, as we see in a very sort of concrete term, it will overburden the healthcare system uh, just financially. But like in a, in a more blurry term, if you look at what's happening in America, uh, it's over this whole trauma we, we're carrying with ourselves. If we're not approaching that, it's actually overburdening society. Mm. But I mean, what I find interesting, you basically, I mean, I think we did the first podcast a half a year ago and this is when you were already a very, like I said earlier, like a very thriving force to bring this topic forward. You, you started to talk about it in, in articles about you, like in a way that other people maybe would never talk about it. So, I mean, 
Um, how would you say, I mean, or do you think that your, you as a person also have changed since you started to get into this really, for, for so many people, really big topic of mental health care? Because I feel um, the more I, I also get into this, the more I feel how many people are really very desperate if it comes to that topic and how they're looking for solutions. And I mean, even we as a still kind of smaller business at the moment get like five emails a day where people ask, what can I do? Where can I, where can I go? What should I do? Can you, can I talk to you about this? So and I feel in a way that it changes you as a person also a little bit. And maybe in a weird way, because you did also like a psychedelic experience where your ego kind of is suddenly no longer so much relevant to yourself even. And I feel it in an interesting way. You become also like a tool in a really good way to bring this to people that would never otherwise have had that solution. Yeah, so, so as you said uh, before, it's very hard to take psychedelics and you not, um, you, you not want to help other people or because you feel connected more to people. And that obviously positively is also if you feel connected, you want to help people. Sort of what we try to contribute is that that the not the mistake because it's like it's very hard to call it a mistake but like the sort of where i think the 60s went a little bit the wrong way if you look at timothy leary they sort of tried to cut corners and i always try to and i have that also in other themes i'm investing in in general in biotech or in other tech themes like and I have a very good friend who's, uh, who's uh, one of, from my point of view, the most amazing leaders, uh, the president of Rwanda, who I learned that from because he had this country coming from the genocide and he rebuilt it, whatever. And what I learned from him is that change also takes time. So and there we're actually talking about discussing or having debates where I sometimes disagree with sort of other people in, in, in various fields, not just psychedelics, where... Some people really want, in Germany, you say, with the head through the wall. Yeah? And I, I think for positive reasons, because they see something is working very well, and then the immediate impetus is, why not now? And why not legalize psychedelics? Give it to everybody, whatever. But if you look in human history, society is very complex. And normally, you need to be careful to take your own experience, which is very positive, and sort of extrapolate and say now 100% of people need to think like I do. So, and I learned from my actually friends in politics, like the president of Rwanda, that societal change also needs time. So as sort of, if you want to call it that way as an activist or as somebody who wants to bring change, you need to go that fine line that you want to bring change. And I want to change something. I want to make psychedelics legal again as medical treatment. That's a very big change for society. But at the same time, I need to acknowledge that, as you say, people might be afraid of it. People might think it's crazy. Yeah. And we need to take these people with us on the journey. And that, that takes time. So that's not an overnight thing. Yeah. That takes sort of a lot of convincing, which you can do via studies, whatever. So, and I, I thought of, so I think that's sort of the way how I look at it in general on a lot of sort of change campaigns or change stuff like yeah that you sort of it's always risky if you take your own individual experience and enforce it on 
on, on society too quickly. You always need to think that there are other people who have other experiences. And that's, by the way, if in a political sense, why I like the politician, because I think what we dislearned is like debating. And debating does not mean that you just throw your arguments on the other side and then you expect that the other side is changing immediately because just you said it. Yeah, debate also means that you try to think about the argument the other side brings on and why do they think that way? Yeah, and that you sort of, and again, that's I think is the real psychedelic experience as well, that you're not, that you're becoming open for the other side. And even if you don't disagree, for example, I don't think that every debate has to end in me agreeing with the other side or the other side with me. Yeah, I think the debate, the main thing is that I realize that the other side has good ideas as well. I might disagree with them, but I realize where they come from, why do they think that way? And then I start weighing them and say, well, maybe they're right, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm right. So, so and that is, I think, what we completely lost in politics. It's just like shouting at each other. And by the way, they're both sides. Yeah, In that context, I had a sort of fun, not fun, but like, interesting question in one of the last interviews and i get it actually pretty often which were like that one of my really close friends and investors in a tie is peter thiel and peter thiel is supporting trump and a lot of people are like are president trump and psychedelics not mutually exclusive and it's already actually i think completely wrong because it it implies that question already implies that the person who asks the question makes the point that he or her is 100% sure that President Trump is wrong. Yeah, it might be, I don't want to go into that discussion now, but it's actually wrong to imply that. Yeah, It's always because half of America voted for him. Maybe the critical people would say a little bit less than half, but it doesn't matter. People voted for him. There are people, yeah, and it's important. Yeah, and I think what psychedelics told me is, again, to accept people, first of all, as a first step, and always assume, I've always, when I have a debate with somebody or a discussion, I assume that the other person knows something I don't. By the way, or at least feels something I don't, because they have their own history, which makes them come to a certain sort of conclusion, opinion, feeling. Yeah, And it's acceptance means that I really accept it, whatever it is, yeah, and then try to find a common basis. Yeah, So, so for me, psychedelics teach you that should be very inclusive. Again, it doesn't mean that I need to agree with them on something, but it means that I accept that they have their opinion, I have my opinion, and from that acceptance, we can find maybe common ground and then try to, again, what I love to do is debate, is to uh, sort of convince the other side, but convincing with a form of positive acceptance uh, first. I mean, also like what you just said, like when you had an experience like that, I mean, I think you even feel like a psychedelic experience. I, I think what happens first is that your whole kind of image of idea of the world is gradually changing anyway, without you having the chance anymore to, <laughs> to take it back in a way which is, I think, sometimes very interesting because you realize that your perception has changed like sometimes a little later on or something happens that you would, under other circumstances, you would handle that situation completely different. And then suddenly you're like, wow, I didn't do this or that or this and I didn't think this or that after I've done this, let's say, psilocybin trip six months ago. 
So, and I think this will actually contribute to an exchange of people also in a different way that they were able to have before, or like just unfriend somebody on Facebook as a reaction of somebody that was something that somebody said that you might not agree with, or you even get really furious about them, but you rather would write, well, this makes me angry instead of like, okay, 50% of my friends are not just out. So which is a wrong... I, I'm always proud of one thing. I'm joking every morning, but if I look at my Facebook uh, feed, it's really diverse. So, so there is not a single topic in sort of my friend group agrees on. So I have like the one, and, and I think it's good because I get a, a, a diverse view yeah, on the world and I can make my own. I, I think this whole echo chamber, that's a completely different topic. It's all so bad. Like, yeah, because again, life is in a nice way, I think, complicated. I don't want to say complicated, it's diverse. Especially when we want diversity, we need to even accept it. I think people are calling always for diversity, but diversity yeah. means normally, or not means normally, but some people who call for diversity, they sort of mean the diversity they define. So they define the, the quadrant where diversity is allowed. Yeah, And then they can't stand diversity, which is out of that part. And if you say, I appreciate diversity, I need to appreciate fully whatever people think. Well, I mean, this also includes like, for example, I mean, just as it's a really good example, we, we were supposed to have a black therapist on a podcast tomorrow and she declined because she says, I don't want to have another round of 50 questions from white people because at the moment I don't want to answer these questions. And that also includes like accepting their state of mind and saying, well, oh, now you should tell us about how you feel as a black person and then maybe not, not anymore like in two months. So it means also that to accept their point of view if they want to communicate and at the moment maybe they don't. So that's also like a really good way of to learn how to just accept some, certain things. But coming quickly back to, because I think um, that's an important question we should really have on the podcast is you mentioned it earlier that how the whole psychedelic idea of the whole psychedelic let's say um, meaning is also very much connected in the end to religious and spiritual experiences which we also don't really have anymore today not very much actually or we don't we don't actually have it as a community anymore maybe just on your own private meditation altar or in your zoom yoga class at the moment but not anymore <laughs> or wherever and Google Hangout class. Um, so, so for you, that was always something that was very important to you, right? I mean, to think, to, to kind of include your, or the, in general, the spiritual experience. Yeah, meaning already before psychedelics, but especially with psychedelics, I think it's very hard, hard to describe a psychedelic experience for most people without sort of using sort of, let's call it spiritual, religious um, sort of words. Yeah, the, the problem with it, why I'm already now struggling again, is that religion is one of the most sort of emotionally loaded themes of our time. And actually, most likely it has been that for the history of humanity. So meaning if you use words, religious terms to describe a psychedelic experience, I might want to say something else than the recipient of my words is thinking because every single word, if I use the word God, if I use the word divine or whatever, that all is loaded with so much of your personal experience vibe. So, so that's why it makes it so complicated. And I think, for, for example, this is why so many 
psychedelic experiences are using pictures and it's in a really true way a psychedelic experience is actually hard to put in words in general so, but if you go back if you, if you stay like maybe on the science side if you go back in history psychedelics are deeply rooted in religious ceremonies or maybe the other way around i think religious ceremonies are deeply rooted in psychedelic so many religious cults or even what we would call today a mainstream religion are actually at least are heavily influenced by psychedelics that I would actually more or less it's always say for everybody it's, it's, but like I think most religions even the ones today Christianity Islam Buddhism Hinduism are influenced at least influenced if not really that the original sort of founder has had psychedelic experiences and that led him to start the religion yeah actually at least certain subgroups of islam for example do think that the substances mohammed used to communicate with the angel yeah might have been psychedelics uh, so the shiite islam is actually endorsing psychedelics and is not putting psychedelics in the same uh, category like they would put alcohol in at all meaning they see it as a positive thing yeah, so many religions are based again, or at least influenced by psychedelics, which, by the way, is also an important thing because we try to mirror that. Always, if psychedelics were used in religious sort of context, they have been used by shaman, priests, so in a guided setting. And actually, sort of the shamans of our times, the priests of our times, are then the psychotherapists uh, and the doctors. Yeah, so we're trying sort of to take, actually, or to, to build on that experience of tribalistic religious cultures, yeah, and practices and sort of bring them into our time. Yeah, I think that, um, I think we had the whole kind of current situation kind of addressed very well. So, and um, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure as always. Hopefully we do it regularly because the psychedelic movement is hopefully moving ahead. So we have maybe regularly some things to discuss. And thank you very much. Hopefully it was a pleasure. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.